I, I get excited about product. And so I'm like, yeah, this thing's amazing. It's, it's super <laughs> compliant. It's going to be awesome. And then you're like, so, so our goal was to eliminate as much hand pump as possible. Uh, well, at the same time, not making a noodly bar that just doesn't feel, feels kind of vague in your hands when you're riding. It's a very popular post. We want to keep it that way. You can, you can take out every bolt from this post, yeah. turn it into a pile of base parts using only an EDC tool, which I think is pretty we, cool. One yeah. of the things we try to do here is not just enter the market with what we call Me Too products. Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and this is the Downtime Podcast, where we're going to be taking you deeper than ever into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. Today we're going to be talking technical with the Chief Technical Officer of 1UP, John Staples. But before we do that, just a few quick messages. Firstly, make sure you never miss an episode by following the podcast. Simply hit the follow button in your podcast app now or find dedicated buttons for all major platforms at downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. You can also keep up to date with what's going on by following us on Instagram or Facebook where we're at Downtime Podcast. If you're hungry for more downtime, then join the newsletter at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter for exclusive behind the scenes insights, mountain biking snippets, product reviews, partner offers and more. If you want to support the show, then you can join our Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast or grab yourself some merch from downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. Just a quick reminder that merch is now shipping locally in both the UK and the US, which should make the US shipping cheaper than it used to be. If you prefer to watch today's episode, check out the podcast on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash at downtime podcast. All the links I've mentioned will be in the show notes for this episode on the website downtimepodcast.com. Today's episode is supported by 1UP, and I'm delighted to be joined by their Chief Technical Officer, John Staples. Together, we'll delve into the intricacies of designing 1UP's latest and most innovative products. We'll explore 1UP's unique approach to handlebar design, aiming to alleviate arm pump, and discuss the enhancements made to their already super popular dropper post for the latest V3 model. Join us for valuable insights into product design and testing from a brand who seem to have mastered the art of elegant design. So, without further ado, here's... John Staples. John Staples, welcome back to the Downtime Podcast, man. How's things with you? Oh, they're going really well, Chris. Thanks for having me back. Good. It's always a pleasure. I like to catch up on uh, anything when it comes to a bit of product design. Um, yeah, before we get stuck into things, though, just remind people what it is that you do within the, the OneUp family. Sure. Um, I've been here for just over 10 years. I was one of the original three founders here at 1UP. Um, and I'm currently the chief technical officer, which pretty much means that I'm head of product design. Um, so I'm here to talk about products. Excellent. Sounds good. And we chatted, um, I think it was back in 2021 now, we recorded an episode with yourself and one of your fellow founders um, where we talked about the kind of growth of the business from uh, basically a 42 tooth expander sprocket was kind of where the yeah. whole thing came from. And, uh, it's expanded from there literally into a, an awesome product range. Um, people can go and check that out over on the, on the, the website, downtimepodcast.com if they want to hear the full backstory. Um, but a lot's gone on since 2021. Hey, like both in the industry and for one up, like your product range has grown pretty substantially. Absolutely. COVID hit us. I think, um, I think we've doubled in size since then. We're now 29 people here in Squamish. Our entire, our entire corporate structure is here is based here in Squamish. Um, so we ship worldwide. Yeah. We're, um, we're growing. Yeah. It's good to hear, man. Well, I wanted to start off by chatting a bit about handlebars. Um, I think often like a bit of an underestimated 
part of the riding experience. It's what connects us into the bike. It's what enables us to steer the bike. Um, and there's a lot of um, intricacy in both design, the shape, the way the bars are made. But I think a lot of people are just like, well, that looks like a nice bar. I'll, I'll grab that one kind of thing. And it fits my price range and all this sort of stuff. But sure. you guys entered the handlebar market and you took a bit of a, a different approach. And I think it began with a carbon bar. Is that right? It did begin with a carbon bar. Yeah. We, one of the things we try to do here is not just enter the market with what we call me too products, which means we're making a carbon bar too. And it's made in the same way in the same fashion and it has the same performance as other people. So we try to find ways to differentiate ourselves from the start, um, on the, on the carbon handlebar, which is the first one and on our current aluminum bar. Uh, what we did in that case was to make the, the section between the clamping section and the control section, an oval, so that you get a bit more compliance vertically when you're when you're ripping down the trail and your hands are moving. You want you want to try to eliminate hand pump as much as possible because hand pump leads to sore forearms, which leads to a lack of being able to break. And I, I firmly believe that if you if you lose your ability to break, you lose your ability to go fast. Yeah. So, so our goal was to eliminate as much hand pump as possible, uh, while at the same time not making a noodly bar that just doesn't feel feels kind of vague in your hands when you're riding. Yeah, so that's you're looking at trading off. Well, I guess you're not really trading off. You're trying to separate the vertical compliance that you want to take the vibration out of the hands away from the stiffness when you're like when you're turning the bike effectively is that what you're saying you're, yeah, de you're decoupling exactly. to an extent exactly yeah yeah okay yeah, we sorry go sorry on. go ahead i was gonna say that um we spend quite a bit of time um and a few prototypes we did carbon first because it allows you kind of unlimited shape opportunities uh you can make the mold whatever shape so we did we did various um sla parts even though it's not full stiffness you can kind of still get an idea mm -hmm. what's sla the, for people that aren't familiar oh with sorry that? sla is uh stereolithography it's a it's a type of 3d printing uh -huh. so you can make you can make an actual bar um in full form and even though that material is very weak and very flexy you can still get an idea of how of how stiff it is in comparison to other parts that are made of the same material. Okay. Yeah. So that's where we started and then we we picked our, our kind of our our best option for that one and and moved forward with a with an actual carbon tool mm -hmm. and then iterated the layup from there. Yeah, I was going to say is is all of this like compliance element of it from the geometry of the tube section or is there a a, a significant element of like the carbon fiber layup as well? Uh there is a significant amount from the carbon fiber layup, but you can only do so much when you're hampered by geometry. So in a, typically bars are a round section at the, at the stem, a round section at the controls, and then a tapering round section between those two pieces. And so if you need to make a bar strong, which you do, um, the, most of the material that contributes to strength, both in tension and compression, comes from the top and the bottom of that of that section of mm -hmm. tube. And so, with carbon, um, what you end up doing is having very thick in, in a in a circular cross section. You end up having very thick top surface and a very thick bottom surface. And then to get your weight down to where your target is, you end up with very thin front and back surfaces. And what that gives you is actually the opposite of what you want, which is stiff up and down and flexy front to back. 
So by using geometry to our advantage, we made that section oval so that it's it's quite short top to bottom and quite um, quite long front to back, which allowed the 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 layup to be more more homogeneous wall thickness all the way around that oval, mm -hmm. which also helps with also helps with layup, also helps with molding because then you can wrap your sheets completely from the top all the way around the surface and you get more um, long fibers going around the entire um, the entire cir circumference of the oval um, which makes a stronger bar in the end as well mm -hmm. so by and by not having these really thick top and bottom sections and these really thin front and back sections we were able to make both a stronger bar and a more compliant bar uh, without adding a bunch of extra weight so it ended up being from, from theory to practice, um, actually worked out really well. Yeah, and having that more homogenous layup, does that, um, does that help reduce manufacturing costs or does it, does it just improve kind of piece-to-piece -piece robustness? Like you're, you've got less risk of a part being, you know, to, yeah, a, to a high end of spec kind of thing. Yeah, I think we've all seen those, those images of like a bike frame deconstructed into all of its carbon fiber pieces. Like you see that in, in when people launch new products and the, the reality with carbon fiber is it usually takes a lot of small pieces put in exactly the right spot. So by making, by allowing that carbon to wrap all the way around the post, you end up with larger pieces, more, less chance of, of missing a piece or the tolerance of the material, um, adding to a, a larger tolerance and weight range of the part. So it, it just makes manufacturing easier. It makes the parts more consistent, um, and it makes it makes it makes the ride feel better to the end consumer. Yeah. So, is there any trade off then in compliance and strength? Because obviously, they're the two things you want to achieve. Can you, as you in, increase the compliance of the bar, are you therefore naturally reducing the strength, or is the fact that you've done this more through geometry kind of combating that? trade-off uh exactly it, do, it does combat it so strength is i mean strength is a given we have we have targets that we need to hit um our carbon bars pass uh zedler astm5 which is the, a high-end dh standard so even though um even though we have an aluminum bar that is um for other reasons more suited to dh um, our carbon bars do all pass the highest uh, most stringent standard well above iso um so strength is a given and then it's how much compliance can you get without without dropping below that strength target? And geometry is really was really the answer to be able to do that. Okay, interesting stuff. So, what testing does it go through then? Once you've decided on what you want to achieve, and you've got some, I guess, some prototypes, and then you've you've got some parts to go and test. I guess there's a there's a durability element to this, but there's also like the ride fill element and trying to get that compliance right. How do how do you Absolutely. get from early prototypes through to a signed off product into production? The as much as carbon's really awesome to work with because you can you can you can do a lot with the mold. Once the mold's cut, that outer shape is is kind of is kind of set without cutting another mold, and they're and they're fairly pricey. So yeah. so you take your best you take your best shot at a mold you think will work. Um, and then you iterate layout from there. From there, you are testing. In our case, we tested compliance, so we benchmarked it against um, against popular bars on the market. We found that we had an advantage both in uh, being able to be more compliant as well as, as stiffer in the steering direction. Okay. Um, we get it on test rider bikes. We everyone here at at One Up rides bikes. 
Um, so we do a lot of, of internal ride testing here in Squamish, but we also, and then we send it off to, for a third party testing. In the case of our current bars, we use uh, Zedler testing in BC, in, sorry, in BC, in uh, Germany. Uh-huh. Um, but we're also toying with EFBE, which is another one of those, another one of the above ISO standards. Um, everyone talks about ISO in, in the bike industry and it's kind of the minimum that you need to hit to be able to sell a product. But I think it's well understood, especially for handlebars that, that being a, that passing ISO is, is a fairly easy target and okay. not sufficient to, to sell a product on the market. Yeah. The stronger, the better when it comes to a handlebar. No one wants that break. Yeah, exactly. Fair. And then when you, you talk about like internal ride testing, there's loads of you there with bikes and you're all going out testing stuff. How does the feedback loop on that work like do, do you come back and fill in a form after your lunch ride when you've when you tested something like how do you kind of a, communicate a little bit. it's in the past it was a bit less formal than that because we, we've been growing and when it was just the three of us we'd get prototypes and go ride them and be like yeah that's awesome <laughs> um as as we as we grow we're now 29 people uh our engineering manager nick takes care of um our internal and external test riding program mm-hmm. so people um people sign up for for these products they give us regular feedback Um, and i should stress that we never put anything on a test rider bike that hasn't already passed test lab um testing yeah Um, it's not it's not a guinea pig scenario it's a it's a this thing this thing is safe but do we like it yeah kind of test riding application yeah and how how does that work though because it's quite something like compliance vertical compliance in a handlebar is quite subjective it's very hard to come back and say well, that was a score of blah, blah, blah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely, And it, it, it is very subjective. It's also highly dependent on the grips you ride. Like if you run a thinner pair of grips, you're going to be more, you're going to be more in tune with the compliance of your bar where if you run thick, a thicker set. So we, for our, from our, from our test riders, we're more looking for a, did you like this better than the product you were riding before? And specifically with compliance, I find this in bike frames as well. It's, very difficult to tell when you go to a more compliant product, but it's very, it's very, very noticeable when you then switch back to the product you had before. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I find going to something that is stiffer is, is more noticeable to a rider than going to something that's more compliant. So we ask them to, to put it on, ride it for a bit and then put back what you're running before and see what you think about that. So there's like an ABA test where you go back to your baseline to remind yourself kind of thing. Cause it's harder eh? unless you're yeah. at the trail head and you've got a mechanic there and they, you can do quick swaps. It's not always straightforward to just switch handlebars halfway through a bike ride. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We've tried doing that. We've tried, um, like a, a short set course and then having, having bars swapped out and having them kind of wrapped so you couldn't see what you're running. Uh, okay. Um, and it's, it's, but it's a lot of, it's a lot of effort at the end of the day, people want to go ride the trails that they love, not the random trail we pick up. So yeah. you, you send them out with, you send them out with a bar, you get them to swap it back to something they had before and you can get some pretty good feedback. Yeah. And do you try and keep, um, at least a portion of that testing blind effectively? So maybe it's not like covered up, but you don't tell them that, what you're trying to achieve with it. You're not saying we're hoping this is more compliant. You're, you're just giving them a bar going and saying, go see how that is. We do that more externally. It's, it's hard to keep secrets internally where I, I get excited about product. And so I'm like, yeah, this thing's amazing. It's, it's super <laughs> compliant. It's going to be awesome. And then you're like, don't tell the person what it's about. And they're like, I already know, man, I already heard you talking <laughs> over at the lunchroom and, and through the wall. 
So it's, <laughs> it's hard internal, but externally we, we certainly try to try to keep, um, keep a bit of wraps around what we're trying to achieve and what we're, what feedback we're hoping to get yeah. so that we don't, um, don't soil the, the feedback that we do get. Yeah. And are you, do you test externally with like, um, a, a varying level of rider ability or are you more interested in um, like high end riders and their ability to feedback? It's, we focus more, I would say we focus more on high end and probably not, uh, because we don't, it's not that we don't want the, the, um, uh, the lower capability riders testing. It's that the high, high capability riders typically test more. Uh-huh. So we have guys that ride every day. Um, and you typically get more long-term feedback from those riders. Yeah. In a shorter time period, I guess. In a shorter time period. For yeah. Sure. And when you're trying to develop and get things into production, then anything you can do quicker is of benefit, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So you've got this, um, this bar, you're happy with it. That goes on sale. And then you followed up with a, an e-bike version of the carbon bar. And there's yep. a, a definitely a level of skepticism around like e-bike specific stuff, I think within the market and whether it demands it or not, it's certainly in some yep. cases, but what do you see as the differences or what have you made different with the e-bike bar? Is it purely down to just having cutouts for the control cables or is there more going on from a technical perspective? Uh, it, it's 90% the ability to clean up the cockpit. So mm-hmm. you, with, with the e-bar, we introduce grooves that allow the, the motor controller to turn back on itself and go underneath the grips, go through yep. a hole and then travel all the way down the bar to the stem instead of having to externally tape that, that cable onto the ex, onto the outside of the bar. Uh, we did take the opportunity to, to try to improve the compliance in, in, on the e-bar. We rotated that flax section slightly back towards the rider and the goal there was that the the forces that your arms put into the bar aren't 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 vertical. And our, our original bar isn't vertical either, but we rotated the back a little bit further so it's in line with the arms. So as your arms are pumping down the trail, pumping the bars, they're actually in line with that thinner section. Mm-hmm. So it gives more of the compliance back to the rider instead of kind of hitting the compliant direction at an angle yeah that, that makes sense. sense yeah yeah totally what about like the whole strength stuff is it all still the same targets for an e-bike for you uh yeah for, we have it there is an astm5 plus e-bike which is okay. which is what um that current bar passes um but at the end of the day um as we develop more products we're going to be we're, we're going to be testing to that e-bike standard because most products outside of that particular one having slots for cables um e-bikes are just bikes that are a little bit heavier so if we're going to sell products for bikes they need to be products that we can put on to e-bikes regardless what they are yeah definitely that makes sense so carbon bar done happy with that set out to try and do that in aluminium and uh i've got a little bit of a background in engineering and i'm guessing that that was substantially harder uh uh yeah absolutely um one, because you, you're a little bit more limited on what you can do with aluminum, short of hydroforming. Um, hydroforming is the, the process they use for really intricate bike frames. Mm-hmm. Um, allows you allows you to almost, um, you make a mold almost similar to, to a carbon fiber mold, and then you, um, you use fluid inside the tube to press it into the outside shape. So it's very simple. It's it's kind of akin to, to carbon molding, but you need weaker materials to be able to do that. You need, uh, and it's it's typically not available in in 
the levels of aluminum that we like to use for handlebars, which in the case of our aluminum one is 70-50. A big reason for 70-50 is that even though even though strengths vary significantly between between types of aluminum 7075 7050 down to like the 6000s like 6061 or the 2000s like 2014 even though the the strengths vary significantly by 30 40% um, the stiffness of the of the base material doesn't doesn't move very much at all 6000 and 7000 are almost identical 2000 slightly different but a very very small degree mm-hmm. So if you add, so what it comes down to is if you add material, you add stiffness. Okay. So we made it at a 7,000 series. We made it at a 7,000 because it gives us the most strength with the least material and the least material means the most compliance. Okay. And when you talk about Just, material, it's basically wall thickness, I guess. Is that right? Basically, yeah, wall thickness. Yeah. Aluminum, aluminum smogginess. So you end up, you end up at wall thickness. The other struggle with aluminum is that you typically have a homogeneous wall thickness no matter what you do, mm-hmm. um, which actually works to our benefit because the oval design allows us to have a, a homogeneous wall thickness uh, to pass our fatigue testing. So at the end of the day, we make 7,000 series bars, which are as compliant as they can be while still passing the same fatigue testing and, and um, drop test uh, testing that our, our carbon bars do. Um, but without excess material that would be required if we made it out of, out of 6,000 or out of 2014. Got you. Okay. And how, how close did you manage to get to the kind of the compliance performance side of the carbon bar with the aluminium side? Because like I say, it's much um, more of an engineering challenge, I guess. We got, we got very close on the, on the, on the actual weighted displacement call it that like mm-hmm. if you hang a weight from it and see how much it moves it's the, pure, the pure stiffness yeah very close um it's a little bit harder to quantify the damping effect of carbon versus aluminum yeah um you have to get into resonant frequencies and that's something that we that we're starting to do with some new software that we got um but i run both um on my regular bike i have a carbon bar and i've always been a carbon bar person and then on my e-bike, I, I currently run the aluminum bar and I actually find the aluminum bar to be more comfortable. Like it's, okay. it, it's, it's pretty cool. I'm, I, I recommend it. <laughs> it would be inherently yeah. less damp than the carbon version though. In theory, is that right? Uh, in, th- in theory. Yeah. But we, yeah, I, I don't know what it is about it. I can't, I haven't quite pinned it, but I, I really do like the aluminum bar. Interesting. How would you direct people then if you're if you were in a shop selling your products and you were talking to a customer, how would you help someone find the best bar for them between the aluminium version and the carbon version? Let's assume they're sure. not on an e-bike. Yeah. Uh price and weight, I guess, are what are the, the main things that it comes down to. Um as well as well a little bit of riding discipline. So if you're um uh, if you're more into trail and enduro and you're, you're getting older, like I am, I'm not 42. You don't like to fall as much. Um, that's carbon's the way to go for sure. Um, if it's in your price range, uh-huh. cause it, it saves about a hundred grams, I think over your bike, which is about a quarter pound off your bike. Um, the reason we got into aluminum bars to begin with is because we're, we used to be a team of three. Now we're a team of 29 and we've always said that we want to make the products that we want on our own bikes. But as the team grows, that, that breadth of riding disciplines also grows. Like we've got, we've got some gravel grinders. We'll probably enter that, 
that segment in the coming years. Uh, we've got Whistler Bike Park that's 45 minutes away. Um, and if you're someone who's who's hitting the bike park every weekend or you're, or you're a DH racer and you're clipping trees and you often lay it down and like aluminum, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, uh, controversial to say is better at damage tolerance. If you hit a tree, if you hit a rock, it's, it's, it's stronger in that way. So if you're running carbon bars, you take a big ding out of it, you should change that bar. If it's aluminum bar, you, you, you probably won't even, maybe you don't even notice a scratch from the same industry, from the same incident. So, um, and then the carbon bar is half the price as well. So, but yeah. feel wise, I think they're very similar. Um, and like I said, I think I even prefer the aluminum. Yeah, interesting. How often would you suggest replacing handlebars? So aluminum accrues fatigue, right? And at some point will ultimately break. So there's a, there's a need there to change your aluminum bar at some point is and i'm guessing that's different in carbon yeah so carbon is an interesting material because it's almost impervious to fatigue like it's it goes forever on the same on the same fatigue rig that'll break a carbon bar at three hundred thousand cycles or something um but then aluminum is more damage tolerant mm -hmm. to to blunt hits and and over clamping and things along those lines so it's, there's no, there's, it's a difficult answer. There's a difficult question to answer. There's no hard line. Um, and you, you should really talk to your local bike shop about how much you ride, how much, how, what shape your bars in, are in, and just play it safe. Like if you have, if you have a ding in your carbon bar, change it. If you've been running your aluminum bar for, I don't know, three years hard, it's probably a good time. Yeah. Um, and even I guess there's no there's no hard and fast rule. I guess is what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah, fair it's, enough. It's a, it's a hard one to answer. Hard to pin down, yeah, because you don't know how hard or how much people are riding as well. But I'm guessing any yeah. carbon bar, if it's had a substantial knock, even if you can't really see visible damage, you should probably think about replacing it. I guess because you could have some internal issues, maybe. It it can. They they're getting quite thick, uh, and and bladder roll is improving to to allow you to to com to compact thicker sections. Uh, but the it used to be a concern that if you if you hit it you could have a delamination that you can't even see and then they I remember people like on frames you take a little coin and you'd like knock it and if you could find a, a dead like a, a spot that has a different sound then you probably have some delamination. It's but it is a really, it is a really hard question to answer. Okay, but less likely these days with the th kind of thicknesses that we're seeing in the products. Yeah, that's right. Fair enough. Well. Awesome stuff on the bar side. They sound uh, sound very interesting. I'm kind of intrigued to try a pair because arm pump is something I've been uh, suffering with in the last year or so on the downhill side. So I might have to uh, treat myself to a pair of those. But also exciting is that you guys have got a new dropper post coming up. Um, and I think it will be launched by the time this podcast episode comes out. You've already got one of the more popular dropper posts on the market, I guess, with the V2 post. Um, I like to think so. Yeah, it's definitely one you see out there a lot, always gets good reviews. How do you go about improving something like that? It's always very hard to take a product that is doing really well and make it better. So what? how do you, as a business, what do you do? Like what are the steps you go through to say, right, we've got this V2 post, it's doing great, here's how we're going to make it better before you kind sure. of set off on that engineering journey? Sure, sure. Uh, one of the big one of the big advantages we have is that we sell 
we sell direct to consumers. We also sell direct to dealers and distribution. But uh, what makes us a bit unique is that we handle warranties directly from all channels. Uh, okay. So if you bought our if you bought our product from Joe's Bike Shop in South Carolina or something like that. Um, we don't require that you send it back to them and then they send it back to us. And then there's this, there's this loss in communication. We, we prefer you talk to us directly and we'll sort you out directly because you're our customer. You're not just Joe's customer. So in doing so, we, we've got feedback on every warrant, not, I wouldn't say every warranty, let's call it 90%, 90% of the warranties that have happened on V2 posts. And so we, we know where the improvements opportunities are on that post um and so with with v, let me let me back up to a, a kind of our our evolution of from v1 to v3 yeah um on v1 it was our first entry into the post market um it was a bit conservative on weight uh we had a few uh firsts with that with that product we really focused on stack height which is the distance between the underside of the collar and the and the rails because we wanted if you had a bike you could fully insert this post in we wanted it to be as short as possible so that's the first time you saw our our trademark um drop rail clamps at the top we call it we call them water buffalo thing for a little while because they have one here but if you look at it kind of it kind of looks like a water buffalo's horn is the way it hangs about about that yet yeah yeah so call it water buffalo um, so we introduced that. We introduced a really, a really s- short mid collar, and those two things combined gives you quite a sh- our short stack. Um, and it was the first post that was externally travel adjustable as well, because we understood that we only offer two sizes. If you couldn't fit a one fifty, uh, maybe we could maybe we could fix that problem by being able to lower it by by fifty millimeters. I think that post had travel on it mm-hmm. that you could do externally in a few minutes. So we, at that time, we looked at what was in the market. We didn't have a lot of experience with dropper posts, but we had a fairly conservative design, as I, as I mentioned. And we focused on the, the geometry ways that would make that post work better for a product. Uh, V2 came around, I think, um, <laughs> I think about a year later, because as we started to get feedback on the V1 post, we came up with all these cool ideas that we could do to, to, to take it to the next level. Um, with V2, we offered it in more sizes. The V1 was only available in 150 and 170. We, we understood that people wanted more than 170 and that there's a lot of people out there who couldn't fit our 150. So we offered 120 to 210 millimeters. We dove into the cartridge and the goal in that one was, was millimeters, taking out millimeters wherever we could. So I designed the our own valve within that cartridge that that shortened it to allow us to shorten the cartridge. I pushed the actuator up inside the lower tube when it's fully compressed. Mm-hmm. There was space between the bottom of the of the upper tube and the end of the cartridge, so I biased the actuator up inside that free space to make the actuator even shorter. And the V two. Um, had the shortest total length and shortest stack height of any post when we launched it. And it's, it's still pretty darn close. Uh, I think there might be one post out there that has a slightly, a slightly shorter stack, but only by a couple millimeters. Uh And at the same time, we took a bit of weight out. It wasn't the main, the main idea, but we went to an oval upper tube and we got down to a post that's pretty darn light 
not the lightest in the market, but pretty close. Um, but they had uh, better reliability of the cartridge, refillable cartridge, um, and everything just shortened into a, into a, a smaller package. Um, that was that one on for a few years. We and then we expanded the upper and the lower end of that. We had always planned to extend the uppers. We we did a two forty because uh, there's quite a few tall guys here, and the two tens still have this much of the post sticking out of the, above the above the seat collar. So there was some room to move it. Um, that required us to make it the upper tube a little bit a little bit stronger. Um, at the same time. Uh, my sister came to me one day cause she was getting into mountain biking and she's like, my friend went to the store and they say that she's too short to have a dropper post. And I was like, no way. Get her to use our dropper post calculator. We have this website that she, they'll tell you what you can fit. And she came back and she's like, yeah, she did the dropper post calculator and yours don't fit. And I was like, really? No okay, cool. What does she, what does she have? <laughs> so she had this giant with it. She's quite short, like five, five, one, five, two, something like that. And she had a giant with an interrupted seat tube okay um so we we made a 90 like i was like well we can't have this person out there who can't run our post we're supposed to have the widest range we're supposed to fit everybody so we made one size shorter that that fit her and she was she ran the first prototype and she was stoked so that's kind of where we ended up with v with v2 yeah um so your original question is how do you what do you do to make a v3 yeah how do you what sort of uh, what is the 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 targets that you set out to achieve to get from what is already a well-performing post to something that you believe that you can make that's even better sure um one was reliability even though we like i said we have access to almost every warranty claim we've ever received so we can correlate those and and see where Although the V2 is a very high-performing post, it still has some some issues with it. Yeah. Um, and so we set out to we set out to fix those. We fixed things like having too much saddle play, like that side-to-side saddle play that you kind of get on posts. Yeah. The V3 has next to none. I won't quite say none because it's you have to have a little bit of space, but it's it's very slight. Um, we took a bunch of weight out of every component. Um, and it became a game, a game of millimeters and grams. Can I take two millimeters and three grams out of the actuator? Cool. It doesn't seem like a lot, but you do that on, on the actuator and the lower post and the mid collar and the upper and lower clamps. And eventually you're talking quite a bit. Our, our V3 is 60 to 70 grams lighter than V2. It's the, it's the lightest infinitely adjustable post available on the market, lighter than every other infinitely adjustable post on the market. Um, and it's, it runs a lot smoother. We, one of the complaints with our, with our V2 is that the mid, uh, the, the seal, um, wasn't the smoothest It had it added stiction It added, made it more difficult to drop. So we went to SKF and we've been working with them for over a year or we're working with them for over a year to develop a custom SKF seal, which has significantly lower friction. We worked with Igus bushings to develop um, a three bushing system. I have one here as well. Um, one of the this is the mid bushing that you typically don't see on dropper posts mm-hmm. because um, of uh, like people saving cost. Is that why you wouldn't see that mid bushing? Um, I think it's just the uh, there's not a lot of really long droppers out there. Okay, one of the things that you, one of the things that you want from a long dropper is larger bushing overlap, which means the the distance 
the distance between the top and the bottom bushing mm-hmm. that that controls how much the post rocks front to back and as it rocks it's going to start it's not going to move freely right that's right yeah but as you increase as you increase that um, bushing overlap the unintended consequence is that you actually create a section of the post between those that can bow mm-hmm. and if you're if the clearance to the lower tube is is too tight you actually get rubbing between the upper tube and the lower tube so on our longer posts on our 180 210 240 we've added a mid bushing which if that happens it it loads the bushing instead of low, loading aluminum on aluminum which makes the makes the makes it very slippery on the way down yeah as you as you increase the bushing overlap does that force you to increase the total length of the post it does but i okay. i think that's a i think that's a reasonable trade off okay um because bigger posts are generally ridden by bigger people yeah and bigger people are generally heavier so we want we want to not give up reliability Mm-hmm. for the sake of having the shortest total length and they're so also probably t- riding bigger frames with more insertion depth i guess so you can handle a longer yeah. longer overall length post absolutely okay so the v3 it's it's in a lot of ways a refinement of the v2 the v2 had the same bushing overlap across the board except for the 240 which we increased um which is what led us to these to realize how much of a better idea that was so on the v3 Every different size has a different bushing overlap from 90 all the way up to 240. Mm-hmm. We've also added six, um, six anti-rotation pins instead of three. These brass guys here, if you're looking on uh, down, uh, Downtime's YouTube channel, uh-huh. the rear left and the rear right, which are these two, are made, of, um, are made of plastic instead of brass. And that plastic is oversized um, almost so it becomes a compression fit. Okay, and that compression fit virtually eliminates any saddle rotation play, and then the brass pins are there to um, to back it up. So if you really torque your saddle, you'll hit brass. But if you are just riding around, it's it's going to hit those two plastic pins. Um, there were only there were only three brass pins on our V two design. Um, our cartridge is is completely new. Um, it is. It's fully aluminum. We've removed any steel to remove weight. Uh, so I think we shaved 30 grams out of the cartridge alone. Fair play. Um, yeah. At the same time, we've made it fully recyclable as well. Um, it works a little bit like a CO2 cartridge. So if you if you remove the top nut, we offer, when you, when you get a service cartridge, if you get a service cartridge, we offer a puncture bolt so that you can actually puncture the top of the cartridge, drain all the oil, recycle your oil with your with mineral oil from a fork and then at that point the cartridge is 98 percent aluminum so you can toss it in with pure aluminum you can toss it in with a mixed metal um but we we saved a chunk of weight there um yeah just refinements across the board yeah have you am i right in thinking you've got some ovality on the inner diameter of the tubing as well uh that's correct the the upper tube is oval um, you remember back to me talking about carbon bars and how when you you wanted strength um, out of a out of a oval, out of a round tube, you want to make the top and the bottom thicker. So we've done exactly that on the upper tube of the dropper post. The front face and the rear face of the tube are thicker than the side faces of the of the upper tube. So it's a round outer profile, but an oval inner profile. 
Yeah, and that does that uh, oval profile vary in the different lengths of the post as well? Um, in in this case, it's the same up to 180. Uh-huh. And it's not that we couldn't have gotten um, even lighter have we made it different all the way down to 90, but there's you end up, you, you get to a point where it's it's about the tolerance of the wall thickness, not the wall thickness that you could theoretically achieve. Mm-hmm. So at, we found that um, the the profile we have on the 180 is as is as thin as we want to go for other reasons than pure fatigue. Yeah. Uh, but then the 210 is thicker, also oval, and the 240 is again thicker, also oval. So those three are have tubes that are are specific to that drop length. Yeah. Wow. You so the actual amount of parts that you've had to design for this new what is effectively a range of posts is pretty uh you've gone all in right it's not straight yeah 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 it's as you mentioned it's um it's a very popular post we want to keep it that way um it's it's one vital mtb's next post to buy um five years in a row so we want to make it a sixth and we think this is a significant step up good and it is recyclability becoming more and more important you mentioned that it was something that you factored in with the cartridge was that like we can do this so we will or is there a real drive in the industry now to try and improve recyclability where possible i think i think there is a drive in the in the industry and it's not that i'm not i'm not trying to greenwash i'm not trying to say that this is this is a uh, a perfect a perfect industry that way that way but it's important to try to be able to recycle things where we can. And sometimes it's just knowledge. Like our older posts, you could also disassemble um, and, and dispose of things properly. Uh, but it's, but we need to get the knowledge of how to do that out there. So it's something that we have in, we have an internal um, employee who's working on sustainability for us. So we're going to be putting up more, we call them end of life instructions. Mm-hmm. So the, the product, you're done with the product. It doesn't just go in the landfill. This is how you strip it. This is where these parts go. This is where these parts go. Um, and, or you, or you send it back to us as something we're working on as well so that we can, we can retrofit them, but it's, it's a work in progress. Um, we're not there yet, but we're working hard on it. Oh, that's really good to hear, man. And what about testing for dropper posts then? What sort of stuff are you doing? Both sort of lab rig based testing and then ride testing. Um, Ride testing is is again rig based testing is where we start. We don't ride test things until they until they passed our requirements on the rig. Um, we have internal testing in at, here in Squamish as of about a year and a half ago. Um, so we've got standards that we want to have posts meet before before we allow our riders to get on them. And then once our riders get on them, it's really about it's really about feel. It's about smoothness. It's about um, longevity of seals and and whether grease got in or grease got out or water got in those type those types of things it's not really about um, end of life or, or fatigue testing um, just more about how does it feel under the rider mm-hmm. and then in the in the lab are you doing like accelerated wear testing have you got posts constantly just going up and down all day how does that work um not not so much up and down we um not here anyway we we do cartridge testing um, in Taiwan, which is where most of our um, manufacturing is. But here, it's about uh, fatigue testing that could co- that 
could have a post break in the field. So we have fatigue testing, cranking on these things quite often. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got all this engineering that's gone into it. You've, you know, you've been eking weight out here and there, which is adding in, I'm guessing, kind of machining operations and surfaces and all this kind of stuff. You've, yeah. you've got a huge, I guess, bill of materials across the entire range to try and make sure that every length post is, you know, perfect for everybody. But all this comes at a price, and I'm sure there's a price target involved. Like, how have you, how do you work towards a price target and decide when to kind of factor things in or take them out and get to a price that you're you're happy for this thing to go on the market at? That's a good question. Um, we've always. It's a bit of a strange thing. We're three. This company was started by three engineers, and we've always kind of wanted to sell things for a fair price, um, but then also make decent margin on them. So, mm-hmm. like, we've never designed a product and said this product is really good, so we can sell it for this. It's more been like this product cost us this, so that lets us sell it for this. <laughs> You know, it's, it's, we, we want to sell products, um, that we would want to buy with our own money, that, that makes sense to buy with our own money. We want it at the end of the day, if you would take a look at the specs and the price, I want it to be the logical decision for somebody to buy our post. So they say, well, that post weighs this and it only costs that. And it's available in all these sizes. Why would I buy anything else is if we can achieve that, I think that's, I'm, I'm pretty happy with our company. Yeah. And has that been challenging to do when you're going to all these, like to the nth degree effectively to make the product kind of so unique in its performance and its ability to suit all different sizes of riders? Uh, I don't think so. I think you, you run that calculation and, and we're still, we still come in quite a bit lower than a lot of posts on the market that I don't, I don't feel are as good as our posts. Uh-huh. So there's, there seems to be room, I think, it, I guess to answer your question a bit vaguely to, <laughs> to sell it where we want to sell it and then also still be cheaper than a lot of the posts on the market. Yeah. Good position to be in. What are you most yeah. proud of then from that development? Cause that sounds like it was a pretty, pretty big project. It was, it was pretty big. Um, it took three years, which was the longest project that, um, I've worked on here at one up as, as, as a single product. Um, probably two things, the weight, I think being able, anytime you can put an est on the weight on the end of your selling feature, the lightest post on the market. I think that's, that's a feather in my cap. Yeah. And um, for us to be the lightest, um, infinitely, infinitely adjustable post on the market, I think that's a huge win. I think from a, from an engineering standpoint, I think I love how simple this thing is to tear apart. Uh-huh. Um, it you only need a two millimeter hex, a five millimeter hex, and a fourteen millimeter wrench. Um, and the only reason you need a fourteen millimeter wrench is to be able to remove the actuator because it has flats across it. Okay, um, but we ended up at that at that dimension. Because it happens to be the dimension between <laughs> the side plate and the custom tool on our EDC tool. So at the end of the day, you can disassemble this entire post using only an EDC tool. Nice. So if you've and got an you EDC can, tool in your stem, job done. That's right. So you can you can take out every bolt 
from this post, turn yeah. it into a pile of base parts using only an EDC tool, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, that's nice. I like that. Elegant. Nice engineering. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, so what is the retail price that it's ended up at? The retail price, I believe, is two seventy nine okay. US dollars. Yeah, and I don't have the I don't have the euro and the UK conversion on that. That's all good. Nice. Yeah, good stuff, man. So I'm guessing now that the post's kind of out there, there's other projects bubbling up. Is there anything else that you can tell us about that's coming up? Anything you can tease us with? Perhaps you, you mentioned that there might be some forays into the gravel world, but. Uh, yeah, I th- we're we're certainly looking at at gravel parts. We're 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 testing a few different things. Um, I c- can't really get too deep into into new products that we're working on. Unfortunately, um, I will say that I'm not I'm not done with this dropper post. I have some ideas on um, <laughs> some some extra bits, some extra kits that you can that we can use with it. Um, what like a- add-on but, kind of things, like potentially, yeah, yeah. potentially add-ons. Okay, interesting. Yeah. I've never. I don't. I can't think of any examples of something like that in the market. So I'm kind of intrigued as to where you're headed with that. Yeah, it'll 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 be cool. I think. Yeah, it'll be cool. Excellent. Um, yeah, we're we're always looking at the uh, electronic side of things as well. It's not something not one of our um, traditionally one of our core competencies mm-hmm. here, uh, but it's I, we see the market going that direction. Um, when you say electronics, are you thinking more like the wireless side of things? Is that what you're kind of talking about? Yeah, I've um I think SRAM has done an amazing job on their drivetrain uh-huh. on sorry, on transmission. Yeah. But uh access access is pretty cool. It offers you offers you some advantages that you don't that you can't have with a mechanical system. Um but on the on the drop pro side, I haven't seen a wireless dropper that doesn't come with compromises. Uh-huh. Significant compromises in weight, stack height, total length, all the things that you need that you need a post to do. Mm-hmm. There's not really been a, a wireless solution there. So it's something that we're looking at as well. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And what's exciting you then in the mountain bike world at the moment? Like there's a lot going on. There's a lot of kind of negative vibes floating around. There's a lot of brands struggling. We've seen some pretty sizable companies and some small companies disappear or go into administration, but racing's as exciting as it's ever been there's a lot of positive stuff there there's loads of great technology like what how are you feeling about things uh i'm excited about dh taking a coming to the forefront again Uh um it kind of it kind of was um before enduro and then enduro kind of took over as the main racing scene for a long time i think i'm pretty excited about dh coming back to the top of the um top of the game as well i'm sure it has been there for has stayed there for a lot of people, but for, for me, I kind of, I'm coming back to it. Mm -hmm. Do you feel Um, like that, that the downhill following is going to grow then? Is that the way you're looking at it? I think so. Yeah. 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 I I think the downhill following will grow in the next few years. Mm -hmm. Um, and is that a byproduct? Sorry, I was going to say, is that a byproduct of the coverage or is it just that like, it's a super exciting sport that is just getting more, interesting to watch like how do you what do you think is driving that growth in that area i i don't know honestly it 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 seems to come in waves i remember it was it was huge and then it was kind of it kind of took a back burner to enduro and now i feel like it's coming back to the forefront again i don't really have a good explanation of why but um yeah it's fair. I, it, feel, I it feels i hadn't thought about it but it does feel like maybe not yeah. from, even from the racing side but i think from the participation side uh-huh. like 
Um, as I mentioned, we've got quite a few people here and I've seen more DH bikes show up last year than I had in the previous, in the previous nine. So yeah, um, interesting. it's certainly getting, certainly getting some, some attention yeah. from us locally anyway. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I think e-bikes are going to get lighter. They're going to get more like regular bikes with the, with the addition of a motor. Um, I think that's going to continue to, and it's, it's pretty exciting to see anything that, um, that, that, that brings that much change to the industry. Yeah. It's exciting to watch it develop. I think the early ones were a bit janky ride, but you ride some of the newer ones and they're pretty good. Yeah. Definitely. As a, as a, as a, as a bike to ride downhill, not just a bike to ride uphill. So I, I'm pretty excited with that, yeah. that continuing to move. Yeah, definitely. What are you riding at the moment? What's in the garage? Uh, I have a Santa Cruz mega tower. Uh-huh. Um, and I have a Santa Cruz heckler SL. Okay. Oh, how is that? I've not, uh, not had the chance to ride one. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love that you can, I love that the Fazua motor when it's off, you can pedal through it. So it's, it's very close to being a one bike. Uh, that's what I think is very cool about that Fazua system, because if you pull the battery out, you've got the biggest, you've got the biggest storage container in the world. <laughs> um, and you don't have any motor resistance. So it, it comes at a pretty small penalty. So it's, it's a cool bike. Yeah. And how's, and the, it's, how's think, the range like when you're using the motor? Uh, it's, it's good for around here. I don't, I don't do epics on it by uh-huh. any means, but, <clears throat> but if I, like I said, if I do run out of battery, at least I'm not, at least I'm not pedaling through a motor, um, to get home. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's good. It's not up to the full range of, of the big guys, but yeah. Interesting. Anything on the wish list? Is there stuff that's launched recently that you've kind of been looking at and are intrigued by, not necessarily to own, but you like, you would like to swing a leg over and try. I've, I've always loved the look of the raw Madonnas. I don't know why. Maybe it's just like the, the pure, like utilitarian look of them. I but I understand it. they ride quite, I understand they ride quite well. And they've just and they, launched the V3. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They definitely, yeah. they definitely look the part. Yeah. And the downhill bike, to be fair, the Yala looks again, similar thing. I think it's just that raw, clean finish. Like it's an elegant looking piece of design, I think. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I would definitely like to ride those. Cool, man. Well, it's been, um, it's been interesting catching up. I'm excited to see how the new post goes down in the market and hopefully there'll be some more awards winging their way to you guys over at one up. Um, if people are interested to find out a bit more, where's the best place for them to be looking? Yeah. Hit us up at oneupcomponents.com, Instagram, Facebook, we're everywhere. Nice one. We'll stick links to uh, all of that in the show notes. But yeah, thanks, John. It's been a pleasure catching up. All the best for the the next year. And we'll look forward to seeing what else comes our way from one up. Great. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Nice one. Cheers, John. Cheers. All right. That's it for this episode with John. I really hope you've enjoyed it. If you want to help support the podcast, then the best way to do that is by visiting patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast and setting up a donation. You can also support by grabbing yourself some of our fully updated merch lineup, which is now delivering locally in the US as well as the UK. You can check it out over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. Stay connected by following the podcast, hit that button in your podcast app now, or visit downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. Don't forget to follow on Instagram and Facebook too, where we're at Downtime Podcast. For an extra dose of downtime, you can sign up to our newsletter at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter. All right, that's it for today. We're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride. (laughs)